If you're trying to conceive and feeling overwhelmed with fertility advice, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to Don't Tell Me to Relax, your fertility podcast and antidote to unhelpful fertility information. I'm Hannah, a fertility acupuncturist, teacher and campaigner for better fertility education. This podcast aims to empower and inform you about your menstrual cycle and fertility. It's basically all that information you didn't get in sex ed at school with the aim of improving your understanding of your reproductive health and optimizing your fertility. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode where we are going to be talking about one of my favourite topics of conversation, especially when I'm in clinic and we're going to be looking at vaginal health and I'm very delighted to say I'm joined by Alison who is a nutritionist and works a lot in this area. So I'm going to shut up and let Alison introduce herself and say what she does and her sort of specialism in this area. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you for having me. So I am Alison Hall and I am a fertility nutritionist. And what that means is I, I use nutritional therapy and I do it through what's called a functional medicine lens. And what that means in real terms is that we're viewing the body as a series of interconnected systems. And we acknowledge that each system is going to have a knock-on effect on the next system. So that's probably where we differ in terms of outlook from primary medical care. And I'm not a doctor. Um, so the two things have to go side by side. And that's really, really important. Um, and I work exclusively now in the fertility space. So all of my clients are either individuals or couples who are trying to and very often struggling to conceive. The area that I'm particularly interested in is miscarriage and recurrent loss. So the vast majority of my clients have already experienced that trauma. Um, and that is and one of the reasons I'm so interested in that is because that's that was my journey years and years ago, years ago. Um, you know, my children are teenagers now, but um, that was something that I experienced and I really had nowhere to turn at the time. Um, and for many years, when once I'd qualified, um, because prior to this, I was doing something else entirely and I was a television producer. Um, and it was around that fertility time that I decided I wanted to retrain. But I didn't want to go into fertility because it felt like um, it felt like something that was too charged and too emotional for me and too triggering. And so for a number of years, I wouldn't go near fertility. But then in that way, the universe started sending me certain clients who I loved working with and I knew that I could help them and I knew I could empower them. And that's where I got to where I am now, really. And that's mm. what I do. I run a really busy clinic. Yeah. Um, and it's fantastic. And then the other things I do, I also teach the second year degree students at the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. So I deliver their fertility module. Um, and then I do some collaborations along the way as well, because as we were talking about earlier, I think it's really important to have that joined up thinking and yeah. that network of support makes such a difference for couples and individuals. Absolutely. And that is a really um, good point and why I asked you to come on to talk about the vaginal microbiome, because it is an area as an acupuncturist, it's an area that I that comes up in clinic a lot because I do a lot of work on menstrual cycles, you know, fertility health. And so often dysbiosis and problems with vaginal health comes up quite often. And 
I think over the last five years, I've really seen a, seen a change in the uh, treatment approaches that are out there mm-hmm. and a recognition of the importance of addressing vaginal microbiome as a, a way of supporting fertility, as somebody who is maybe struggling to conceive or if they've been through loss, mm-hmm. then again, it's always an area to look at. And I, even though I'm under um, Moira's, I'm doing a course at the moment, I'm doing Vagiversity, which is a six month program. Oh, but amazing, as I'm, yeah. it is amazing, but mm-hmm. as I am not from a nutrition background, you know, I'm an acupuncturist. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work I can understand to a certain degree, but with complex cases, it's it's beyond the remit of what I can do. If it's straightforward and it's really clear what we need to do, then I can I can address myself in clinic as part of the treatment with me. But when it becomes more complex, I have to kind of say, okay, what's going to work best for this patient? And it's much better to work in collaboration with a nutritionist who will have more tools at their disposal than than I do. So that's why I thought this would be really good to discuss with you because I know that you know this is an area that you work in a lot. Yeah, I'm slightly obsessed with it, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> slightly obsessed with vaginas. Yes. Um, but I've had to be because actually it, the way, as you quite rightly say, there is a, has been a real pivot in the last, and I think you're probably right, it's generally, I think it is about the last five years when there's been an explosion of research in this area. Um, there has been a growing understanding of this area as well, because for a very, very long time, it was something that was entirely ignored. And I still find today that I have conversations on behalf of my clients with consultants, with GPs, and I'm having to persuade them and present evidence to them so that they understand the importance of this if something does come up. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It is, It's frustrating, isn't it? Because you can see the world of opportunity when you start delving into it and understanding it then you can see the world of opportunity there is out there with this approach to address it from a root cause place because what has happened I think through so far is that we've always treated things like BV and thrush we've it's been a sticking plaster you know it's been kind of like you treat the symptoms you treat the symptoms and actually getting to the root cause has not really been an approach. It's been antibiotics or creams or just kind of put up with it for lots of people. Yeah. This is just your life. You're, you are prone to these and, yeah. you know, find your kind of ways to manage it. Whereas I think by looking at the microbiome from how I understand it, it really allows people to address the root cause of the problem in a much more sophisticated way than than anything that I've seen till, till this point. And so I think it really is life-changing. I mean, fertility aside, Obviously, that is really important, but also for general health, if you're someone who's had oh. chronic BV, chronic thrush, it, it it gets in in ways of so many different parts of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, perimenopausal women, how many perimenopausal women are going to face these issues or have been through the perimenopause and now are left with kind of permanent yeah. Yeah. damage, permanent problems? Real issue. Absolutely. It's yeah. huge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so I think this is really... A, an avenue where you can provide some proper support that really does make a difference as opposed to just a kind of sticking plaster to kind of go away until it comes back again. Absolutely. I think one of the things we probably need to really just explain is is what the hell we're talking about and what this yes. is. Yes. 
that was my first question and I've not even got that. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tangents, left, right and centre. Tell us, tell us, what okay. is the microbiome? Right, so let's, if we take a step back, first of all, and we think, you know, the word microbiome is banded around an awful lot. And I think a lot of people now are familiar with the concept of the gut microbiome. And so when we're talking about a microbiome, we are talking about a community of bacteria that live on a host. All right, that's what the microbiome is. And it's actually the relationship between the host, so in this case, us as humans, and those bacteria. And as humans, we have trillions of bacteria that reside all over our body and inside various crevices and cavities. So we've got them in our mouth, our nose, our lungs, um, our reproductive tract, the male reproductive tract, there is a seminal microbiome, um, on our skin, you name it, we have bacteria there, okay? So if we're thinking, for example, about the gut microbiome, there's been an explosion of research over the last 20 years or so, which really, really kicked off with the Human Microbiome Project. And what that was looking at was the relationship between, and continues to look at the relationship between some of these microbes and how they impact health. So we know that if we have um, certain bacteria in our gut, for example, we are going to perhaps have more immune resilience. We might be able to ward off coughs and colds better. Um, we know that some of those bacteria affect our mood. Some of them are going to impact the way we digest and absorb our food. Some of them are going to um, impact um, menstrual irregularities, for example. So that you, they, lots of these bacteria do different things in the body, um, even if they predominantly reside in the large intestine. So that's the gut bacteria. And what we're looking for with gut bacteria is a real diversity of bacteria. Because yeah. they all do different things. Now, when we're looking at the vaginal microbiome, we're actually looking at... Um, a, a group of bacteria that is much smaller. We don't want the same diversity. Um, and what we know now is, um, and we this is sort of well understood, that a lot of these bacteria are associated with positive outcomes. And I like to think of these bacteria almost as an arm of the immune system because they're there to protect us. So we have almost, um, you know, the one way you can think about it is like bouncers or gatekeepers. OK, and particularly we're looking at a community or a species of bacteria called lactobacilli. All right. And they're the good guys. All right. So in the vaginal tract, we need a large proportion of these lactobacilli bacteria. And roughly we're talking about 95 plus percent of the bacteria in that female reproductive tract need to be lactobacilli. They are going to do all sorts of things to protect us. They produce acid. So they produce hydrogen peroxide and they produce lactic acid. And these provide protection against some of those bacteria that might have less beneficial impact on us. And so what they're going to do is they're going to control the acidic environment. So ensure that it's not too alkaline. Um, and if we think about fertility, for example, that's really important because, mm. for example, when you've got incoming sperm, you don't want them to be subjected to some very alkaline bath or something that's too acidic 
And those little swimmers are then going to perish on arrival before they've even had a chance to do their job. So from a fertility point of view, just in terms of fertilization, it plays a role. And we also know that, again, from a fertility point of view, these bacteria, um, when they're there, can contribute and are associated with more successful pregnancy outcomes. We've got other bacteria um, which can be associated with implantation failure, recurrent loss, preeclampsia, preterm birth. And that's just from a fertility perspective. Mm. And then some of these bacteria, we might be most familiar with them because we see maybe bouts of recurrent thrush or bacterial vaginosis or recurrent UTIs. They're all kind of big red flags for me. So if a client comes to me and we take a, a really detailed case history and I ask about vaginal health and any of those sort of symptoms come up, I immediately know there's work to be done, even if it's a history and it's sort of OK at the moment. The lactobacilli are also really, really helpful to protect against HPV. And some of these bacteria also protect against, for example, the progression of gynecological cancers. Um, so there's a lot to play for in this area. Um, and then we also need to think about other sort of red flags almost um, in terms of if somebody comes to me and maybe they've had a history of pelvic inflammatory disease mm. or um, conditions like endometriosis or fibroids or PCOS. Again, all of these are associated with a disruption in that microbiome. And that disruption is something we call dysbiosis. So that's sort of what it is. And the way I like to think about it, um, I heard someone at a lecture talk about or use an analogy of a garden. So if you think about a garden and you want to have that garden with lots and lots of pretty flowers in it. So you're going to look after that garden um, and you want to make sure there are no weeds present. And if there are weeds present, you want to make sure there are enough of the, the beautiful flowers and plants to crowd out those weeds. And that's the sort of approach that I'm going to be taking with the microbiome as well. I love the analogy. I thought you might like that. <laughs> I love an analogy. It's so. So, <laughs> so um, a lot, lots of people message me and ask about like when to test. Should mm -hmm. I get tested? And so, for example, in in clinic, it, obviously, as you've just said, if anyone has any history, any signs or symptoms, then you know we would always say we yes, we think this you know definitely should be um, investigated further. Do you think everybody should be tested? Like where, like. In in your opinion, if you're trying to conceive, mm. would you just say this is a really good test to do just to check your your health of the vaginal microbiome? I go so far as to say it's a deal breaker working for with me. Okay, so any every, even if they have no symptoms. Well, interestingly, the World Health Organization's latest figures suggest that eighty percent of women who are asymptomatic still have disruptions in these bacteria. Yeah. still have a vaginal microbiome dysbiosis, if you like. So if the World Health Organization are saying it, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And yeah. what I find frequently, and I've, I've come to this conclusion over a couple of years, um, as testing has become more available, for example, but I frequently see couples who have gone, who've really gone through the mill, who've 
suffered with recurrent loss who have gone for multiple rounds of IVF and they're not getting the results that they want. I mean, yeah. one perfect example that I often um, quote because it was it was a really interesting case and lovely, lovely couple, um, a case of premature ovarian failure. Um, and she was using a donor egg and they were on, I think it was about their sixth round of IVF. Mm. They were using his sperm. His sperm were great. Everything was looking good and it was just not working. So we, we knew that it wasn't a case of the egg. We knew yeah. that it wasn't a case of the sperm. We'd done all, the, you know, all those checks had previously been done. And they came to me and the first thing we did was check the vaginal microbiome. And she had really high levels of strep A. Mm. Now, we all know about strep A because it's been in the news relatively recently in terms of sort of more respiratory type infections. But strep A is something that you can also get in the vaginal cavity. And it is linked with subfertility. Yeah. But no one had checked. No one had looked at this. So they were going on and on and on. And she was totally asymptomatic. Yeah. We changed that. She's got a one-year-old daughter now. Oh, and, and, and that is the problem that you've just like hit the nail on the head in, in that I see this in my clinic in that I've had people who've um, suffered loss and we do, we run vaginal microbiome testing and we see they've got strep B, mm. they've got, you know, lots of markers and, you know, they've, they've sort of tried to approach their GP to sort of say, you know, this, this has come up and, and the GP has sort of said, well, I don't know what this test is. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's, you know, I don't know what to do with it. So people are kind of like, it's, it's frustrating when you know that it's something to address, but it's hard to know where to get that support from. Yeah, it is hard. And I think that's going to change. I think yeah. there has been an explosion of research recently, um, a really good example of this. And actually, it was a relatively small study, but it was a high profile study that was run by Tommy's miscarriage. Yes. Charity. Yeah. So this yes. is a 2022 study. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah. Um, 167 women were um, part of this study. And what they were specifically looking at was those instances where we had a chromosomally correct so a euploid pregnancy, there was no chromosomal issues at play. And yet specifically looking at those women who went on to suffer first trimester loss. And what they found was that 93 pregnancies in a, the study um, had a, so there were 167 women, 93 pregnancies went on to have miscarriage. In those pregnancies, the vast majority of women with those losses had very low levels of these beneficial bacteria called lactobacillus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So suddenly we're getting studies that are being are given a lot of press attention mm -hmm. and therefore mainstream medical practice has got to take this on board. So frequently, if I'm writing to a GP on behalf of my clients, which I do quite frequently, I will actually quote that paper mm -hmm. or I will quote a similar paper. And there are certain, um, there are some papers that are looking at the, the links with male fertility as well. And again, in order to get those GPs on board, these, these GPs are general practitioners. They are so stretched. We can't expect mm. every single member of the medical profession to keep up with every single piece of research that's published in every single sphere that they might come into contact with. I mean, that's it's just totally ridiculous for us mm. to even put those sort of expectations on them. Um, 
but there is the research coming through now so I do think it's going to change and I think that's quite exciting so where would you so where would you recommend so if somebody's listening to this and they say okay I want to do I, I want to find out more mm. I mean that you can go to a GP let's say you've got symptoms yeah and you can go to a GP and you can have a swab at the GP what, so what's the difference between a swab doing a swab at your GP and doing the let's say we work a lot with a company called Invivo mm -hmm. who do a, a really good vaginal microbiome yeah. panel what's the difference can you explain yeah okay that, please? So first of all I think the first thing that we need to do is rule out any STIs yeah. number one and I think that every single couple who are going through that fertility journey who have experience some bumps in the road should we say should be having an STI health screen that that will just rule out a whole load of stuff immediately and if there are they are symptomatic then that might be the first port of call now then if you're at your GP you're going to get a culture and a swab and culture um, and what a culture is they're going to actually be taking that sample and they're going to be growing in a petri dish whatever they can grow and if anything grows, then they can look at it and they can identify it and say, oh, you've got this infection or that bacteria, and then they can treat it, which is brilliant, but it only goes some of the way. And the reason for that is because some things just can't grow, um, you know, particularly if we're thinking about vaginal infections and bacteria, some of these bacteria are aerobic, which means they require oxygen, and some of them are anaerobic, which means that they should not have any oxygen in order to grow. So you've got to get the conditions right in that Petri dish. So the in vivo test that you and I both use predominantly, there are a couple of others out there as well, but that one's a really lovely one and it uses PCR technology. And we all know what PCR technology is thanks to COVID. So it's actually looking at the genetic material of those bacteria. And because of this, it's going to be much, much more... Um, specific in terms of what it can pick up. The key is, though, that it's only going to be looking for those bacteria that it's looking for, if you like, um, which is why, for example, the in vivo test does not cover the STIs as well. And your GP is going to be the first port of call for that. So GP clinics for STIs. Mm. Yeah, so GP or a sexual health clinic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think if you've got if you've got symptoms, it makes sense to go to the GP in the first instance. And one of the reasons for that is you want those notes on your file. Yeah. Because those notes are potentially going to go to your fertility clinic. They could be used further down the line. They're part of your medical history. And it's about this joined up thinking. Um, if you've got the, the notes there, again, it's going to be a lot more um, potentially easier to access the help that you need. But then come to someone like you or I or another practitioner who, and there are so many of us out there now who run tests like this, and then we can take it to the next stage. Yeah. And that's where it gets quite exciting because when you're looking at PCR technology, for example, we can also see the spread of beneficial bacteria. Yes. And that's really important because what I frequently see is um, women with a depletion or a lack of those beneficial bacteria and that is causing the problem in the first place yeah and if that's the case we can actually inoculate them we can get some strain specific probiotics so probiotics put the good bacteria in if you like and we can actually give those to the client 
and that will allow them to sort of to reseed their garden. Yeah. And and that is the problem, I think, with with treatment without that reseeding is that so for, say, for example, lots of people that I have worked with have taken antibiotics repeatedly for yeah. years for UTIs, for thrush, for BV. You know, a lot mm. of the time they've not even actually identified what it is. They've just been given. And that's so important because frequently they're being treated for thrush and they've actually got bacterial vaginosis. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're actually two entirely different conditions. They yeah. come from entirely different species of microorganisms. They actually present with very, very different, you know, their presentation is totally different. So again, if the person who you're dealing with can actually can have those sensible conversations, ask the right questions, back that up with a test, then we can actually go in with far more specific and accurate ways to support that person. That's right. Yeah, because it's not just about wiping everything out, which is, no, no, you know, no. what can happen with antibiotics. It's about putting no. in the good stuff as I well say, as... I say we are not Putin. We do not want to nuke the place. Yeah. <laughs> what we want to do is we want to work in a far more holistic way to try and support that microbiome. Yeah. And that's really key. And that's uh, that, again, goes back to this idea of almost crowding out the less beneficial bacteria and adding in more of the beneficial bacteria. Because these beneficial bacteria, I kind of think of them a bit like the Red Cross. Um, so they'll come in, they'll swoop in, they'll do lots of good work. It won't necessarily just be the bacteria itself. It's also the action of that bacteria on that host. So, for example, lots of lactobacilli are going to change the inflammatory level. So they're going to bring down the level of inflammation, bring down the amount of immune activity in an area, mm. and they're going to impact the pH that we were talking about earlier. Mm. So that might be helpful. And so they've got a sort of little a lasting legacy, but it is quite temporary um, because most women have fall into one of about seven different categories in terms of what their blueprint is or their set point of the type of bacteria that they quite naturally play host to. Mm. And if we know, again, if we know what that is, some of these bacteria, there are lots of lactobacilli out there. One, for example, is great. It's called lactobacillus innus. It's lovely, but it sometimes goes to the dark side. Mm. So in the wrong company, it can be kind of, um, led astray shall we say so again if we know what the the general environment is like then again it's so much easier to support and that's also where nutrition comes in too yeah and that and that is the thing that i found working in this area is that you know it has to be done as part of a whole picture mm. you know you can't just and, and it's like that with anything isn't it you can't just look at the vaginal microbiome in isolation you have to look at everything else for that person their menstrual cycle mm. their sleep their stress levels because all of these things interplay and influence each other like you said at the beginning the microbiome from the gut in influencing your kind of um uh emotions and your immune system and, and and it goes the other way like your emotions and your immune system influences your microbiome it's everything Definitely. is linked Absolutely. I think it's really important to remember that the microbiome, whichever microbiome we're talking about, yeah. 
is going to sometimes come under fire. It's going to be stressed. And that stress might take the form of an illness. It might take the form of um, being subjected to antibiotics or certain medications that just disrupt that natural balance. It might take the form of, for example, hormonal imbalances. So we know that estrogen is really important because it encourages the production of more sugars in our cervical mucus, which then are going to become the food for those beneficial bacteria. Um, so actually one of the things I'm also looking at is if somebody has got very low levels of sex hormones, very low levels of estrogen, then that might be a problem as well because mm -hmm. we're not actually feeding the good guys in the mm -hmm. way that we want to. Whereas on the other hand, if we've got too much estrogen, we might have a situation like endometriosis, for example, which is then going to be driven by inflammatory um, and immune factors, which is going to cause other disruptions, you know, so it's sort of, it's a bit like Goldilocks, you know, you want it just in the right amounts. And yeah. that's sort of super important as well. So if somebody wants to investigate this further, where, what would you recommend they do? Like where, where would you recommend they sort of start with this whole process? Okay. So if they've got symptoms, definitely go to the GP first of all and just yeah. see what the GP has to say. But you're going to want to go deeper, particularly if you're going through IVF. I think that's really important. The emotional, the physical, the financial investment of IVF is so huge that you do not want to leave a stone unturned if you possibly can. And this is a, the, the test that we're both talking about is a relatively cheap test. It comes in at under £200 at the moment. Um, so I would find a practitioner who runs that test like you or I. Um, there are other tests out there. Um, Screen Me is another option. And that's quite an interesting test because that also looks at the proportion, the amount of lactobacilli. So that's also available. Day, yeah. who um, produce tampons, they now run a microbiome test as well. So you want to find somebody who's going to be able to actually talk you through that test. I think that's really important. Um, so you want to look at that. And you also want to consider your partner. And this yeah. is key. It's so important because if one of you is walking around with a disruption of bacteria, if one of you is walking around with certain infections, even if you're asymptomatic, the chances are your partner also has those bacteria at play. And it's again, this is something I, I see quite frequently is people come to me, they've done a lot of work, maybe they've been referred by other practitioners or by their consultant to me. And they've done all this work, they've gone through rounds and rounds of antibiotics, and no one's bothered to look at the partner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. And we know that, again, actually, there was a really lovely paper that was um, published about Two years ago now, um, one of the authors was the very wonderful and amazing Jonathan Ramsey, who I'm sure quite a few of your listeners will be familiar with because he is probably urologist extraordinaire <laughs> in this field. Um, and um, this paper was particularly looking at certain infectious organisms um, and whether they were also at play from a male perspective, and they were looking specifically at something called ureoplasma and another one called Gardnerella. Um, yeah. What that paper found, and this was a, a study of about 700 plus participants, that paper found that actually these men who actually were walking around with these infections, 
their semen parameters on a semen analysis were looking good. However, their DNA fragmentation mm. was compromised. Mm. Yeah. So there are clues out there and more and more knowledge is coming to light, which is really exciting. Um, but we've got to start using it and harnessing it. Yeah. And and I think and the thing about um, male issues is that it's quite difficult. I, 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 am I right in saying that there isn't yet a, a micro, a semen um, um, microbiome test yet? I a seminal fluid one? Yeah, I, think, I believe that Screen Me are now doing one or I've got one in the offing. Okay. Um, the difficulty with screening from a male perspective and looking particularly at the seminal microbiome. And interestingly, one of the things that they looked at in the paper that I've just been talking about, um, they found Enterococcus faecalis, which is one bacteria that we would screen for in the semen, but they found urea plasma and Gardnerella in the urine. Okay. So it was yeah. coming from slightly different. Yeah areas you'd need to be testing the right thing in the first yeah. place but we've got to remember that semen and sperm cells like our men folk are very very sensitive yeah and they need the right conditions to do everything yeah and so um this means that actually testing is far more challenging from yeah a male point of view but, but there i think are tests out there you can and, and i think if you like from the um in vivo tests that we mm -hmm. run you mm -hmm. can you know if you see urea plasma for example you yeah. then you know so you can look at the female microbiome and make um assumptions about the male what's what's going on there as well so it can give you a lot of information about both partners by doing one test yeah definitely and there are some um bacterias and infectious agents like urea plasma, which are really, really tricky to shift. Yeah. And if we've got a long time, we might be able to go in with a protocol that's using antimicrobials. I'd be looking at supporting the immune system. I'd be looking at some of those immune supported nutrients like vitamin A and checking vitamin D status and making sure they get enough vitamin C through their diet and all sorts of things like that and checking their gut as well, because the immune system is so, um, intricately linked with the gut um, but then what we'd also want to be doing is potentially using antibiotics mm. if we haven't got very long for example mm. but then you want to test afterwards because antibiotic resistance is something that we're all pretty familiar with yeah but it happens time and time again yeah so I work alongside a prescribing pharmacist um, but I will also work with the consultants or the GPs and, and frequently I will say I'll send them a, a you know a, a letter and say, look, we found this. What do you think about prescribing antibiotics in this case? We've only got a short window to work in because, of course, that's the thing with fertility, isn't it? We don't yeah. necessarily have lots and lots of time to play with. Yeah. Um, so maybe it will be worth running a course of antibiotics. You're going to want to check afterwards that the antibiotics have done the job that we set out to do. And then we also want to think, well, antibiotics can sometimes be one of the causes of this disruption in the first place. So how can we support that microbiome during antibiotics and post antibiotics to ensure that we don't suddenly get um, a, a breakout of thrush, for example, yeah. which is very frequently people do see that that, that sort of flares um, in those sort of situations. Yeah. And I think that's the case, isn't it? When people have just got that, that recurrent you know, ongoing thing, issues that they've had all their lives that have just been time and time again. Mm -hmm. It's because that antibiotic use has not been 
used alongside kind of a, a wider understanding or a deeper understanding of supporting and getting back in some good bacteria as well as kind of mm-hmm. removing the bad bacteria properly. Yeah. And and then you, it just comes back time and time again. Definitely. I, I think it's also worth bearing in mind for anyone listening to this who maybe is already working with a fertility clinic and maybe people have been recommended an endometrial biopsy, for example, that's going to be looking at the microbiome further up the yeah. female reproductive tract. Yeah. And that's quite an invasive procedure. Now, yeah. I'm not saying that running a test like a vaginal microbiome test is going to negate the need for it. But wouldn't it be nice to go into that procedure knowing that, again, you've done everything that you possibly can. You've tried to optimize that environment so that you don't get any nasty shocks yeah. further down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And, and exactly like you say, it's it's much less invasive. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alison. That's so, so, so brilliant. I think, so I think the takeaways really are, well, you tell me, what, what, what would you like people to know about the vaginal microbiome? Because there's always this, there's always the, people always ask, should I test? Should I not test? Mm. You know, it does this apply to me? I've only been, you know, I've only been trying for a few months. I think that's sort of where a lot of kind of confusion and, you know, conflicting information is what would your advice be say somebody's setting out on the road to get pregnant and they've been trying naturally for a few months would you recommend and they've got no symptoms would you recommend Mm. testing at that stage yeah um, if they have been trying for a few months particularly about six months or so yeah if they've got a um even if they haven't got symptoms at the moment if they've got a history of symptoms then definitely yeah they have never had any symptoms which is quite rare, actually. Yeah. Um, if they've never had a UTI, they've never had thrush, they've never had bacterial vaginosis, they've never had a loss, they don't suffer with endometriosis, PCOS, fibroids, pelvic inflammatory disease. In those situations, I'd probably say give it six months. You know, you want to try, you, you might want to try without any sort of invasive procedures. You might want to just also, let's be honest, Fertility is stressful, right? So if you're in that phase where you're actually just enjoying trying to get pregnant, Mm. that's one thing. But if you've been trying for a while and it's causing upset, stress, um, you know, you've got to that stage where as each month rolls around, you get, you know, increasingly sort of anxious as you you get closer to your, your period due date then yeah, I would absolutely test. And then I'd also be thinking about those things that we can do to support a healthy vaginal microbiome. So think about, um, you know, if, for example, you're using sex toys or you're using lube, you want to make sure that they, sex toys, you need to make sure that they're being sterilized. Mm. Um, You need to make sure that if you're using a lube, it's got to be uh, pH friendly. So there are some out there. I quite like yes. Yeah. that are not going to disrupt that microbiome. Remember that the vagina is self-cleaning. Please, for the love of God, all these feminine washes out there are an absolute nightmare and they are going to cause more disruption than almost anything else. Um, You know, I was actually speaking to a client, a couple this week, and every time after they'd had sex, she was going and having a good old scrub and using all sorts of, you know, body type shampoos and shower gels um, to try and clean herself. 
it's yeah. the worst thing you can possibly do and then yeah. think about sort of you know menstrual health and so you know make sure that you change your tampon every four hours make sure that you know you're not sitting you know with a, a sort of if you're using sanitary towels um, or even if you're using um, a menstrual cup, just make sure, you know, just think about cleanliness, make yeah. sure you're changing those products regularly, make sure that they're clean. Um, thongs are a nightmare as well yeah. because you can translocate those bacteria between your anus and your vaginal area. So that's not a good idea, particularly if you're susceptible. So there are lots of things we can do from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah. Give up smoking. Yeah. Smoking's very bad. The vaginal microbiome yeah. generally but it's you know again it's another reason to add to the pile of reasons why it's really worth giving up yeah that is absolutely brilliant and I will put all your details I know you're really busy but I will put all your details on um the uh show notes at the end and also the details of the companies that we've mentioned where you can do the testing I think can with the one with day, can you do that by yourself? Like the Invivo one, you need somebody to help you interpret the results. You need a, yeah. a professional who knows what they're doing. But I think with day, it's an at-home test you can do yourself. Is that right? It is. That's right. And, yeah. and there are pros and cons to that. Yeah. And it can be really stressful mm. if you get a load of results and you don't quite know how to navigate them. And they do offer a service where you can actually speak to somebody. So it does help to some degree. But again, if you're thinking about doing more than just treating, yeah. and you want to ensure that this situation doesn't arise again, it's probably best to go to somebody who is using a test that, and, and they can actually help navigate you through that. Yeah. And actually, that's just reminding me one thing that we didn't really, well, we we touched on it briefly, but in terms of like, who who is this appropriate for? We sort of alluded to it, but I think it's important to, to think about is if you are going to be going through IVF, you know, mm -hmm. if IVF is kind of on the cards and you're about to, whether you're doing NHS or you're spending a lot of money, then, you know, it that is a, a really good time. Symptoms, no symptoms. I would say it's a really good time to really think about it because as part of like things that you can do to give yourself the best possible chance to optimize yeah. your health, I would say this has got to be a key area to look at. Absolutely. And what you need to remember again is, is those associations, even if you've got pregnant with um, a healthy pregnancy further down the line, if you want to reduce your risk of preeclampsia, if you want to reduce your risk of preterm birth. Yeah. Um, so it's not just about getting pregnant yeah. in the first place. It's about so much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much. It has been so brilliant to talk to you and just so um, interesting to hear you explain it. It's been really, really helpful. And I hope it's helpful to everybody who listens. And obviously all the information will be on the show notes if you want links. And obviously you can get in touch with either, either of us um, if you'd like to explore testing further. So thank you very much, Alison. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed listening to this and want to find out more, then come and join my free community in Facebook. We have loads of resources. You can catch up on all our previous webinars and be the first to know about forthcoming events. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. And if you'd like to work one-to-one -one with myself or one of the team, then please see our website, hannahpern.com, where you can book in directly or organize a discovery call to find out how we can support your fertility and your reproductive health.